we're finishing off the letter to the Colossians, which has been um, not too long. I don't know how many sermons, I think 12 or 14, something in that area, I don't know. And um, we're closing it off, and it's a section that often preachers won't preach on just this part. They'll add the first few verses of chapter 4 because it seems like just a list of people, like Paul's just signing off a letter. But there's actually a lot in here. So let's see what we can uncover. But we're reading from uh, Colossians 4, verses 7 to 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I've sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. So, thus ends the letter. Now, a good summary, very simple summary of the book is captured by N.T. Wright, great New Testament scholar. As we look back over what Paul has written to the Christians in Colossae, we read a glimpse of the young church in its daily life, worshiping, encouraging one another, learning more fully the plan of God for the world's salvation and of their place in that plan finding out how to fulfill as individuals and as a community the ministries they have received in the Lord, and above all, discovering how to be truly grateful to God and so to advance to maturity as Christians and as human beings. And it's a good summary. Paul has spent time, if you, if you were to go back over the sermons, you'd see the first thing he does is he says, here's what you're to believe as a church. You're a new church. Here's the core foundations, a quick summary of the gospel. Then he says, now this is how you are to behave in light of that gospel in the church building. Then he looks outward and says, now that you know who you, what you're supposed to believe and how you're supposed to live in the church, here's how you're to live out your faith in the world. So he turns it outward. And now here, he turns incredibly to say, now here's who is in the actual church. And he gives you this wonderful snapshot of what the early church looked like. The very church, the people that God was gathering to lay the foundations for the church eternal. He took this motley, ragtag crew and said, these are the people who are going to lay such a foundation that it will never be shaken. Not because of their goodness, but because of how great God is to work through such broken and imperfect people to build a perfect, perfect gospel. And so this is what we see here. And the hero here is God. It's easy when you preach these sermons to see the names and start saying, be like Paul, be like uh, Archippus or whoever. Um, that's not what we're going to do. We're going to say instead, look at who God has used, but look how gracious he is to use them. Look how incredible it is. You know, when, if, if some, I remember soccer fans, a number of years ago, a, a team in, in England called Leicester, Leicester City, 
They came up from the minor leagues into the Premier League, and they won the championship in the first year they were up, which never happens. And they won with a lower uh, budget. They won against all odds. And when that happens, you marvel and say, look, how could this manager, how could this coach do this with such a crappy team? (laughs) And then you look at this team that God's assembling at the early church and even here at Redeemer and say, how? How how can so much happen through these people? And the key there is to say it's because God is good and gracious and committed to his plan. And he will look and he will use all that he wants for his glory. And that's what we see here. When we look at this, we're going to see just that. And here what else we see is in this, this final conclusion, you see that it's not just a letter about theology, but it's a letter to people. You see Paul being a human being, Paul being a shepherd and a pastor. It's easy to think that Paul is this great theologian, which he was, but he kept gathering good people around him. People kept, they were willing to suffer with him and for him and to die with him and to serve him. So he wasn't just a theologian. He remembers names and people and contexts. He was a good shepherd as well. And we see all of that. So we're going to look at that. We're going to see what is going on here. And we're going to see this, these closing verses show us that we have a place in the church There's a purpose that we have as well in the church. And then we're going to see how we get it. How do you get that place? And how do you keep that place, really? It shouldn't say, what is the place? It should say, what is the purpose? I changed that last night. So there we are. So let's begin. We have a place. So here, there's no other letter that Paul writes that that references so many other people than Colossians, except for maybe Romans. Romans and Colossians, he just pours out with people. There's 10 different names here. That are listed. Well, 11 if you count Barnabas, but he doesn't really, he's just side note. So 10 different people are referenced specifically in it. And when you look at these names, you see God at work. You see a cross-section of the church here. And you can know a little bit about each of these people. If you were to get, and I can give this to you if you want, there's a list of all the verses in all the New Testament that talks about each of these people. And if you piece those together, you can start to get a pretty good idea of who these people were. And you see oh my goodness, the church was not superhuman. These weren't the best people in the culture. They were just people that God was using. And we're going to do that. We're going to look at them and we're going to see what sort of people make up the church. And you're going to see how gracious God is and how fortunate we are to be here. So the first one, we'll go in the order they show up, is Tychicus. Now that's a name that, uh, that's how it's pronounced. I know it's a weird one. Tychicus is how it's pronounced in the Greek. Now what do we know about this guy? They refer, the book of Acts calls him an Asian. That means in the ancient times, that's not Asian as we would think of it. It, it means uh, somebody born in Turkey. So he's in Turkey, uh, and what is fascinating is we know he's a pastor because at one point in the book of Titus, in the letter to Titus, he says, hey, Titus, you're off in Crete pastoring there, so I'm going to send somebody to relieve you of your duties soon. And one of the names he puts is Tychicus. He says, I'm going to send somebody to you. I'm not sure who but it might be Tychicus. But we know later that it's not him. In fact, in, in Timothy, we find out Tychicus is sent to Ephesus instead. So Paul has around him this group of guys who have been called into formal ministry. And he's using, he's almost like a regional director. And he's saying, okay, Tychicus, I think you're going to be a good fit here. You know? And he's moving people around. And so Tychicus does this. He goes to Ephesus. And so very quickly, what we see in Tychicus, with a little bit we know, is The church includes people who are called to formal ministry. Not everybody, in fact, very few. But some are. Some people in this room, doesn't matter about your age, 
are going to be called into formal ministry, but not everybody. So that's one thing. That's one person that makes up the church. The second one is this Onesimus. We know a lot about Onesimus from the book of Philemon. Onesimus is a slave. He stole something from his master, Philemon, and then he seems to have fled and went off to Rome to escape. I don't know if he was... Uh, if he, we don't know much about what he did. What did he take? Why did he go to Rome? We don't know, but we do know he meets Paul. And he seems to become a Christian through the ministry of Paul. Paul now knows him. He's in Rome with Paul and Onesimus. They're together. And now he is sending Onesimus back as a slave. As a, and remember, when we talk about slave, remember two weeks ago, we're not talking about 19th century hereditary American chattel slavery where you're born into slavery, your work produces nothing. We're talking about us where your work pays off your debt, where you're paying off something, where you're not treated in the same way, your kids aren't born into slavery. Um, still not fun, but not what we're thinking in the 19th century America. So here we have this man, Onesimus, who has sinned against his master, becomes a Christian, and now has to eat humble pie and go back to his master and repent and be reconciled. He could have stayed in Rome. He could have disappeared into the mass of people, but he doesn't. He meets Paul, becomes a Christian, and then goes back. And so what we see is the church includes imperfect, first of all, imperfect relationships because it's sinners. So you're going to have people who harm each other, who hurt each other, who say things they shouldn't against each other. But then it's also filled with people who have to and have repented and been forgiven. It's a church. It's imperfect. And so just because someone here will offend you one day, they will, doesn't mean you need to run from the church. That's actually the opposite. Paul is saying, no, no, you don't run. You go back and you get reconciled because that's the gospel. And that builds a stronger unity. And so we don't know exactly how it goes. You have to read Philemon, shortest book in the New Testament, um, if you want to know more. But this is one of the, another aspect. Church is filled with people who are imperfect and have to repent and be forgiven, and sometimes we have to forgive. Next one, Aristarchus. Aristarchus is fascinating. He's, he's a Jewish convert. He's become a Christian, and we know Aristarchus, I wouldn't say he likes it, but he finds himself in constant turmoil and struggle. He is with Paul in Acts 19 when Paul starts a riot in Ephesus because of the silversmiths. I don't know if you're a Christian, you may know the story. Uh, Paul says things that... that um, that threaten the thriving, idol-making business. And as a result, there's a riot amongst the silversmiths. And Aristarchus is one of the ones listed that is dragged away and imprisoned, probably beaten, and so on. We then know that in Acts 27, he travels with Paul from Greece to Rome. And here we have a letter from Rome of him saying, he went, he, not only did he come with me, but he's in prison with me in Rome as well. So Aristarchus, this is the guy who seems, for whatever reason, to find himself in the thick of trouble with Paul. He's, all we know about him is he's always getting beaten and thrown in jail. And so there's people in the church, and this isn't necessarily a negative thing. It can be. But for whatever reason, God has called them to engage with the culture, to engage with the world at risk to themselves, and they're willing to bear that risk. So there's some people in the church that do that. So here we have people already, three, called to ministry, humble-pied sort of people who have to repent and be forgiven, that we have to forgive sometimes, that may be us. There's also some who are called to engage with the culture and be on the front lines. Then you have Mark. Mark we know a lot about. So Mark, yes, it's the guy who we think was, wrote the Gospel of Mark. We know he comes from a very good family. Acts 12 tells us this, a Christian family. We know his cousin is Barnabas, a key figure in the early church, so he's got a good mentor. 
But we also know that he goes with Paul on his first missionary journey, and he abandons the journey for some reason. He abandons the mission. So when the second journey comes, the second trip comes along, and it's suggested by Barnabas that Mark comes with them, Paul says, no, thank you. He's already abandoned us once. I'm not taking him again. And it causes friction. So Barnabas and Paul split. Barnabas takes Paul, uh, his, his cousin Mark, and they go off to Cyprus. Paul then takes Silas, and they go off to Cilicia and to uh, uh, Syria and on the second journey. So they separate. Now, that's probably about 49 AD. You hear nothing again about Paul for tw- or Mark for 12 years. The next thing we hear about him is, poof, he is with Paul in Rome. And we're going to find out through Peter and later in the book of, of Timothy, one of the letters to Timothy, that not only is Mark restored somehow and reconciled with Paul, but he's got a really good, strong ministry in Rome. And that's probably where he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And so what we find here is the church has got people in it who have to be reconciled, that they've messed up, right? The church is filled with people who have messed up, like Mark, but have matured. They have grown. They have been shepherded. They've been mentored. And they are then, because people have invested in them, they've come through well. And so Mark, the fact that Mark is mentioned here, we all should be saying, praise God. Because how many relationships here, how many people have left the church because they were hurt and gone back to that same church? Anyone? Very few. Because we are petty people. <laughs> it's hard, right? I remember I say it with Sarah, we, I joke about it sometimes. I, I'm, if, if I go to a restaurant and the service is bad, I will never go back. Ever. Ever. No forgiveness from Carl. And it's terrible. It's terrible. Uh, and I often quote the Jane Austen, it's from Pride and Prejudice. Mr. Uh, Darcy says, my good opinion once lost, what is it, is lost forever. Right? That's me. My good opinion once lost is lost forever. I struggle to forgive. Here we have Paul, Mark eating humble pie, joining Paul, and Paul forgiving him. It's an incredible thing, and that's what the church is. It's full of people that not only do this, but need this. They need to be forgiven. They need to repent. And it's hard for us to forgive them, right? But when we don't forgive, I've said this before. Yeah, the restoration may have taken time. We have 12 years, right? I don't know how long Paul kept Mark at bay before he welcomed him back to full ministry. But there was reconciliation. And that's something that's important to note. Next, Jesus, who is called Justice or Eustace in, in the Latin. So we know nothing about him. The only time he's ever mentioned in Scripture is right here. And all we know is he's a Jew. That's it. He's a Jewish convert who is now with Paul serving the Gentiles. So what can we surmise from that? He gave up everything. If you're a Jew and you stop being a formal Jew and say, now I'm a Christian, you not only risk it, you have severed the ties with your past to an extent, right? We wouldn't see that as Christians. You, of course, see Christianity as a continuity. It is Judaism. And yet, this would have been jarring for him. He'd lost family. And so what do you have in the church? You have people who have given up everything to follow Jesus. They, they risk ostrac- being ostracized in their families because of their faith or whatever else. And so when they come into the church... They're looking for family, and they need to find a family, and that's why we're called to be the people we are. And that's what we're seeing here. So that's another person that's in the church. Next, Epaphras. We learn quite a bit about him in this book. He's also mentioned in Philemon. He's probably the guy who planted all the churches in this little valley called the Lycus Valley. So in Laodicea, Hierapolis, Colossae, he's a church planter. Paul's never been to visit these churches by the look of it. So 
he's planted these churches, and we know he's what we would modernly types call a prayer warrior. All, we constantly hear about him praying. In fact, it says he struggles, so he agonizes, agonizomai in Greek. He agonizes for them in prayer. It says that he, str- he struggles for them, and, and hard work. The hard work means many, many pains, literally, in the, in the Greek, meaning he's, he's willing to take pains for this church. He loves the church. And the, why he does it? That they might stand in this perfect assurance of God's will, meaning he prays that they would know God's will. I said it, it's in the NT right quote at the start, that they would know God's will for the cosmos, for creation, and for themselves, and then submit to that will and get into that stream. And, and Epaphras is praying that they would do that. Because if they are committed to God's plan, they will be able to stand in anything. And that's what he's doing. And so the church includes people like this who pray for us. And I'm not, it's not meant to make people feel guilty, but we do have a core of seven or eight people who come to the prayer meetings on, on Wednesday. I'm not making anyone feel guilty. It's not about that. I'm not, I don't have, I'm not putting you down. I'm lifting these others up and saying, thank you. Thank you that you pray for us so regularly. Oh, his feet. I thought it was a clap. It was a child's feet. Sorry. They sound very similar. But, but no, it's wonderful. See, there's people in this church that we don't even know have covered you in prayer and your children and your ministry and your work and your illnesses. And you know, it's funny, you don't notice it until you need it sometimes. But we stay, they're full, we're, the church is full of papyruses. Next one he mentions is Luke. Luke, this is the only place Luke is ever referred to as a physician. And why, is he called, why does he say Luke the physician? It's probably because there was more than one Luke known to them. So they have to point out, this is Luke the physician, not the tanner or whatever. And so why is Luke a physician there? We don't know exactly. There's lots of speculation. We know he wrote 25% of the New Testament. We know he's a doctor, so he's what we would have been an intellectual in that culture. Um, some people say, well, he's there to help Paul because Paul has a lot of illnesses and he's there as a personal physician for Paul. Others say, no, he's there as an evangelist. Listen, we don't know. Probably both. And what we do know, though, is much like many people in the church, he gave up a lucrative life to serve the church. He didn't have to be there. And how many people are here, how many people are in ministry who could have been making, listen, every pastor I know, everybody in nonprofit Christian work I know, could be making much more money elsewhere. And it's not to make, say, glorify them. It's actually to say, look how great God is, that people would take this invisible God and say, he is worth serving, though I don't see him, but I witness him everywhere in my life. I will serve him, though the world thinks I'm an idiot. And Luke is one of those. That's, that much we know. And that's what the church includes, those who give, up the, their, give of their gifts and their careers to, and sacrifice to serve this body. It's wonderful. Then we hear the ominous name of Demas. The reason I say ominous, Demas is only mentioned one other time. Second Timothy, here's what he says. For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. So we know this Demas, although he is serving God and Paul in this moment in Rome, he eventually leaves. He's not. It's like in 1 John when he says, though they went out from us, they were not one of us. So he served for a time and didn't. Now here's a caution. Please don't get caught up now in saying, oh, what do we know of assurance? Was he ever saved? Please, that's a secondary conversation. When you read that Demas has run away, what you should be doing is saying, Lord, let it never be me that I love the world more than I love you. That's your first impulse. You want to have the, the, the theological discussion after, I get it. But the first impulse Paul's trying to make here, and we make when we read this, is to say, Lord, can you agree 
with this wonderful phrase in Psalm 73, 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Can you say that honestly? Few of us can. But that's the goal. Can we look at our hearts and say, Lord, in this moment I have desired this honor, this glory, this position, this money, this whatever it is, more than I've wanted you. Kill that in me. Because I don't want to be Demas. And so that, remember, theological discussions are great. But that is the key. Can we say that? Whom, am I, whom have I in heaven but you? That's the goal. So Demas, he acts as a warning for us. The church is filled, not filled, that's, that's exaggerating maybe, but there are people in the church, it includes people like Demas, who are not committed to God. That sounds harsh? I'm sorry, Paul just said it. There's people here who will not be here in a year, not because they've been offended, but because they were never committed to Christ. They were committed more to something else, the way the church made them feel at home. They needed fellowship and community, but they didn't need Christ. They didn't think they needed Christ. They wanted a, to, a place to belong. They wanted something that was conservative in, in the world that seems to be going out of, uh, out of kilter. So they come for that. But you see, if you come for any reason but Christ, you will not stay. Christ alone. And so Demas is an example of that. And it's, I, I, I'm, happy that, I'm not happy that Demas... I don't know what happened, by the way. I don't know what happens afterwards. Maybe Demas went away and came back like Mark. Let's pray that he did. And maybe that's the case with many of us. I don't know. All I know is what Scripture tells me. He was here, and now he's not. So, the church has those folks in them too. Then we hear of Nympha. Nympha, in your community groups, you're going to get into more discussion because manuscripts call her a woman, and some say a man. I can't go into that here. But all, it doesn't really matter, ultimately. What we do know is this is a woman. All we know is what's written here about her. We do know she hosted a church. There's no evidence that she led or was dancing in it or cooked for it. Just she hosted it. That's all we know for sure. And hospitality is incredibly important and hard because to host something means to take your home, welcome everybody into how you live, which is very difficult, and then to make them feel at home in your home. It's very hard, but that is at the heart of the church. And she did this at a time when it was illegal to do so. And so let's not applaud Nympha necessarily, but let's say, what kind of a God is it that grabs the heart of this woman, this, this person, that, that says, I'm going to risk everything to have this group of people come into my home and worship because it's more important than prison or anything else. And then lastly, and the, by the way, the, the church includes people like that who bear the cost of building community themselves. They bear it because there's some people in the church, and that's not a knock, who have this gifting for hospitality, and everything is always at their house. They're always hosting it. They're always doing it. That's just their, their, one of their gifts. We're all accountable. We should be all doing it to an extent. But there are people here in, the, in this church that, that have been called to this and are doing it. Last one is, is Archippus or Archippus. He's mentioned here in Philemon. Here's what we think we may, we may know about him. He might be the son of Philemon. Read the first verses of Philemon. You're going to see why the people think that. So if that's the case, he may also even be the pastor of the church in Laodicea. Read Philemon. You're going to see why. I can't go into all the detail. But what we do know, one way or the other, is this. Paul offers this encouragement to him, right? Where he says, um, verse 17, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. Now, we don't know if this is an encouragement or a rebuke. We don't know, because the tense doesn't tell us. Is Paul saying this like, hey, young buck, you've got this calling, let's go for it for the rest of your life. 
Or is he saying in a rebuke, you haven't done your job, you have to fulfill your calling? We don't know. But what we do know is that the church has people in it that require encouragement to be the people God has called them to be. And sometimes they have to be rebuked because they're not being the people that God has called them to be. And this is the church. You see this demographic? See what God is doing with these 10 different people. That's only some of them. But that's all the ones that are mentioned. So that shows us that everyone has a place in the church. Everyone God has called has a place here to do something. And that then leads to the second point, which is the purpose. It's not just a place to be, but a purpose in being here. So what is that place? Sorry, I didn't change my slides, obviously. So what's fascinating, I said it in the prayer with the team earlier, this motley crew, you look around, right, and you see, gosh, look at what God is doing with this group. And when you, look at the, the, the terms Paul uses here. When he refers to other people, he calls them various things. And this tells us what we are to become, why we are here in the church. God is making us something. The sign out there says, come as you are, but it doesn't mean stay as you are. And if that was ever implied here at Redeemer, it's wrong. God cannot take you as you are and leave you that way. If he did, he would be no good God because you're a sinner and you need, to be, you need to be made to look more like his son. And so God cannot help but improve that which he touches. It's just the way it is. And so what is he doing? First thing Paul does, and there's different terms, but one of the things he refers to people as here is beloved brothers. Now, beloved. Jesus is referred to as beloved by God. He is dear to him. And Paul's saying that in, this, in the church, there are belo- we become beloved brothers and sisters. If you read the term, it'll say that in a little note, sisters as well. We become family. And I think about myself, who in my life would I call beloved? And it's embarrassing, but not many people. My gut instinct is to say, well, my family, my wife, but, I, but not many others. And that may just be a knock on me. Is it because I haven't tried to love other people? Is it because I'm not vulnerable enough to them, with them to ever have them call me beloved? Can you be called beloved as well? Have you opened yourself up with other people? And that's, for me, a, a very big slight. Because people, and this is very personal, people will come away from this church saying, he's a very, uh, he's a clever guy. But will they come away saying, a beloved brother? That's my burden. And all of yours. And so Paul says, you're brought into the church, you have a place, but I'm making you beloved brothers with one another. So it's something for me and for you is to think, are we there? How do we do it? How many beloved brothers and sisters do you have in this body? Because it's something Paul's trying to do, or God is trying to do in us. Next one, he calls in no order. He, said, he refers to them as faithful ministers. Faithful, meaning faithful, of course, diakonos. So diakonos means um, uh, deacons. So faithful, but when he says ministers here, he's talking about the ministry of God, the ministry of the church to care for, love, share the gospel, all of that. And so he's saying he's trying to make you not just nicer people with better happy marriages and to be loved, but to actually minister, to take what you've gotten from Christ and then press it into the culture, press it into your relationships, and to serve and to minister to other people that way, to know God's plan for the world and for the church and then to apply it in your context. That's one thing he's making us. Then he's making us fellow servants. And this word is fascinating. It is slave again, remember? Slave, not what it is uh, in a North American context. When you think of slave, what the important thing here, I think, is this, the relationship. God is master, you are servant. That order can never be inverted if you're a Christian. And so when you're a fellow servant, you understand that you are a servant to God. He is the master, he dictates, he he is to be obeyed, not you. 
No one else, no one in the culture. And so he's making us those sorts of people. And when you're given a place in the house, you know your place in the house. So when you're given a place, you realize my place is as a servant to God. He's not here to make my life better, to answer my, like a magic eight ball or a genie to, to get, help me to accomplish my career goals and help me be the best me I can be. It's not what he's there to do. You're there to serve him, first and foremost. And Paul's adamant about that. And he's doing that. That's the purpose, to become brothers, ministers, servants, and then fellow workers. And this is that effort. It's ergon in Greek. It's the word for work, to exert yourself, to, to divert all that you have into the, into the area of pleasing God. That's our work. So he's trying to make us those things. And then when we look at how do you actually become this, how do you get this, because how do you actually do it? It's hard. How do you love people who are unlovable? How do you serve something that you don't see fruit from? It's very difficult. And the answer comes in the last thing Paul's calling us to be. And the answer is when he says, be fellow prisoners. He calls, talks about fellow prisoners. And in Ephesians 3.1, Paul says, I, am, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on, your, on behalf of you Gentiles. Now, Paul understood that he is a prisoner in at least two different ways. First, he is a prisoner of Christ because you cannot be conquered by the cross until... Well, if you are conquered by the cross, you then submit. Paul understood that when he became a Christian, he is conquered first by God. He becomes a prisoner of Christ. And then he submits. And that order is important. No one surrenders until they are conquered. It's very simple. You must first be conquered before you surrender. If you don't believe it, look at any history book about any war ever. You only surrender when you know you have no choice because you've been conquered. And Paul knows he's been conquered, so he must surrender. And this is important because uh, everybody's heard of A.W. Tozer, probably. A.W. Tozer is another one like Spurgeon who's very, almost no education and a great preacher, generally really good theology and just convicting. He's the guy who's always pointing at you and saying, you stink, you stink. Um, but in his book, probably his best book, I think, anyway, called The Radical Cross, he, he laments something. First he's saying, you know, uh, the cross is this. He says, you know, the cross is this tool. And the tool of this cross, it wins every argument it's ever had. And it wins by killing its opponent. That's what the cross does. It was made to be efficient and to not leave you alive. It didn't compromise. It didn't apologize. It killed you. That's its job. And it did it to Christ for you. And then that cross, the unrelenting cross, was taken up by the early church, says Tozer. And it was then preached as unrelenting. If you come to Christ, you die, and he reigns in you. And if you don't like it, then you're no Christian. And they were unrelenting, says Tozer, about this. He said, but then something happens in the history of the church. He doesn't identify where, but he certainly thought that in the 1960s he was seeing it. And here's what Tozer said. Its power, the cross, departed when it was changed from a thing of death to a thing of beauty. When men made it a symbol, hung it around their necks as an ornament, or made its outline before their faces as a magic sign to warn off evil, then it became at best a weak emblem, at worst a positive fetish. As such, it, re it is revered today by millions who know absolutely nothing about its power. The cross affects its ends by destroying one established pattern, the victims, and creating another pattern of its, of its own. Thus, it always has its way. It wins by defeating its opponent, by opposing its will upon him. It always dominates. It never compromises, never dickers, never confers, never surrenders a point for the sake of peace. It cares not for peace. 
It cares only to end its opponents as fast as possible. And he's making a good point. The cross doesn't allow you the freedom to say, I'm going to die some parts of my life, but other parts I'm going to hang on to for myself. It doesn't say, here's my house of my life, and God, you have free reign in all the rooms except for this one. No, that's not the way crosses work. Crosses work by killing you, dead. And he's unrelenting in this. And, you know, it conquers you, first and foremost. And then when it conquers you, and you know it's conquered you, you then submit and you change. So when you know you are a prisoner of Christ, you're willing to become a prisoner for Christ. Paul, it's beautiful, isn't it? Paul at the end says, remember my chains. But here we are 2,000 years later, those chains have rusted away. They're gone. Because Paul was, knew he was a prisoner of Christ, he was willing to become a prisoner for him. You know where you see it very actively in the Bible displayed, that, that change? Is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter picks up a sword and is willing to die to defend Christ. But when he says, come, you were with him, weren't you? Come and die like Christ. What does he do? Not me. I don't know the guy. See, we may think we're very bold, we're very tough. You're willing to, be, to die defending Christ, but not willing to die as Christ. And what happens though? Pentecost. And eventually, you know, in a matter of verses, Paul, Peter goes from being a stubborn man who's always making mistakes to one whose very words become scripture. How? The Spirit. Because somewhere, the Spirit turns Peter from being a man who, was, who knew of Christ to being one who now was recognized and identifying with Christ, who had Christ in him, as it were. And so, this is what Paul, and what is it? So it's an objective fact, but it's also a feeling. See, there is a moment in your life where you know you've become a believer. And if you haven't had that, listen, it's not about feelings, but Christianity is objective. You are assured. If you don't feel saved, I'll tell you this. It doesn't matter what you feel. God has said very clearly that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that he is Lord, you are saved. If you don't feel like it, you anchor back and say, Lord, I don't feel saved because of my miserable life, but I know I am because of your son. You're saved. There's assurance. But there's also a feeling that does come. And you know, there's, I, don't, I don't know a lot of old hymns by music because I wasn't raised in the church. But there's this hymn I, knew, I read before. I had to go listen to it because I'd never heard it read, sung until this year, until the, this week. It's called Calvary Conquered My Heart by a guy named John W. Peterson. Here's what it says. Just behold him, my Savior so fair, bleeding and dying in agony there, knowing my sin in himself he did bear, made Calvary conquer my heart. Now he has won me, I'm his evermore, gladly I'll worship him, love and adore, here on earth's journey to heaven's bright shore, for Calvary conquered my heart. And when you understand, not just in your brain, that Christ died for you, but when you know it, you feel the weight of your sin and the, weight, and, and the, the freedom of his mercy, when you do that, you become a brave person willing to become a prisoner like Paul did, like Aristarchus did, not because you're brave. See, I don't like the word brave because if you're a parent and your child is, is, being, is, is in danger and you run to save them, what you wouldn't say is, I'm feeling very brave in this moment. No, no, you're going to say, I'm feeling love for this child that I love and I can't let them suffer. You don't think about bravery. It's love that, that motivates you. When you become a Christian and you know that he's the one who died on the cross for you, as this hymn says, you then become like that. You're willing to risk anything for God, not because you're brave, because you love him. 
And those are very different motivations. Peter was brave for Christ, but he didn't necessarily love him as he would afterwards. And so that's, I think, what is going on. So if you're a Christian, understand the place and purpose you have. You cannot lose. Rejoice. Whatever chains you may be in now, be they health, physical, whatever they are, financial, um, or will be in in the future, they will rust off, just like Paul's. Those, those chains are a distant memory for Paul now, and they will be for you. You can endure because of who Christ is and what he's done for you. If you're a skeptic, I say, the world may not want you. I was listening to a podcast this week that said, it's the worst Christian podcast I've ever heard. I'm going to say, I won't say which one it is. But they made a comment about, if you're a, the very terrible, if you're a woman or a man who has had all sorts of relationships with other people before you get married, who on earth would ever want you now? Because you've sullied yourself. I'll tell you who, Christ. The world may not want you because you've failed your, your, any number of things you've done wrong. I've got them here. You're forgotten, used, we, useless, weak, unaccomplished, scared, anxious, shallow. Whatever it is, Christ will take you as you are because he loves you as you are. But he will also change you. And you need to know that even in the midst of your struggle, if you're a skeptic, of your doubt, of your anger, of your failure, understand these wonderful words by a modern songwriter, David Crowder. Wonderful words. You make everything glorious, and I am yours. So what does that make me? If everything God makes is wonderful and glorious, and you were made by him, what does that make you? Now, sin has broken in and tarnished that glory. It has scratched it up. It has defaced it a little bit. But thank goodness it has not effaced it. And God will take you and then begin to restore you. That won't happen anywhere but in the church, in Christ. Nowhere else. He alone. He builds his church. We don't. He makes it glorious. He'll use it for his purposes. You have a place and a purpose here. Run to him. Let's pray.